This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rachel Christie. This is the show where we help you answer the question, why should I become a Christian? Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is going to be on the accuracy of the Bible. Is the Bible actually accurate about what it says? Please check out our website at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number four, faith.com. There you will find archived shows for the past several years. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes and check us out on Facebook also under Evidence for Faith. And check out the Ratio Christie website, ratiochristie.org. We have got a great quote. We are on a theme C.S. Lewis quotes. So this says, this is from C.S. Lewis, and I believe this was sent to us by Apologetics 315, which is a great website for all things apologetics, which is just the defending of the Christian faith. So it's kind of a clearinghouse for all the best things about and all the most recent articles and blogs and things about apologetics. So if you're looking for anything from recommended books to recommended college degree programs, you should go to Apologetics 315. So this quote says from C.S. Lewis, supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind, in that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me as a byproduct, the sensations I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. (laughs) But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. That is from C.S. Lewis. Hmm. He was uh, an amazing guy. He had lots of really keen insights into some of the issues and philosophical arguments for Christianity. And this has been picked up by some very heavy-duty philosophers and worked into very strong treatises just based on a little comment that he made like that. And the interesting thing was he started out as a as a diehard atheist and he himself he, exactly lived most of his life as an atheist. I Yep. Not sure how old he was when he was converted. I believe late 30s, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's about right. Late, you know, later in life and uh he described himself as one of the most reluctant converts in history. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, it is Father's Day, and I thought we would talk about 
the benefits of fathers, because we like to point out the benefits of Christianity, not that Christianity has a stranglehold on the concept of fatherhood, but Christianity, the Christian worldview, does promote the idea of fatherhood and fathers being responsible to take care of their children, the importance of male-female marriages and raising children in a godly way. So, other worldviews, I'm thinking of the secular left-wing political worldview that does not really lift up male-female relationships above other relationships. They're kind of on an equal footing. And so, this can be detrimental. We as a society need to lift up fathers and mothers because of the benefits that it provides to children and to society as a whole. So this is one of the benefits that comes from Christianity, and it's part of answering that question, why should I become a Christian? You should become a Christian because it's not only good for you, it's good for your family, but it's also good for society as a whole. So this is from the website familyfacts.org, where they compile a lot of the statistics that have been done in uh, outside studies. And for Father's Day, they listed several benefits that fathers provide. So we'll just go through a few of those items. It says, father's religiosity is linked to higher quality of parent-child relationships. So the more religious a father is, the better his parent-child relationships are. It also says fathers who regularly attend religious services are more likely to be engaged in one-on-one activities with their children. And that also has been shown to be beneficial for children. It says fathers' engagement in their children's activities is linked to higher academic performance. And then they look at the results for the children, boys and girls. It says among adolescent boys, those who receive more parenting from their fathers are less likely to exhibit antisocial and delinquent behavior. And that goes back to, Kirk, in the past we've talked about that very famous study done in the 1970s by Harvard uh, professors. I believe the one of the co-authors was a Yale professor on the causes of crime and talked about the very important developmental stage that children go through where they must learn from their parents right and wrong or else they're very much more likely to in- involve themselves in delinquent and antisocial behavior. So parenting, very important. If you want to keep crime rates down, then you should be pro-fatherhood for certain. Then it says, among adolescent girls, those who have a strong relationship with their fathers are less likely to report experiencing depression. Also, a close father-adolescent bond protects against the negative influence of peer drug use. And then finally, it says, adolescent girls who have a close relationship with their fathers are more likely to delay sexual activity. So all kinds of uh, benefits to children, to the family, and we just want to recognize the fathers in our listener listening audience. Keep up the good work. So it's a, it's a very important thing. Well, I guess some fathers have not been doing a good job, at least uh, in passing on their religious heritage. According to this article that I found by CNN journalist Dan Marika, he writes about a recent Pew Research Center survey, and this is a regular survey that they do. This was 
released by Pew on June 4th, and it's their 2012 American Values Service. And this journalist mentioned that he found it striking that among students who are 30 or younger, so this fits into the generation called the millennials, that they showed a dramatic drop in whether or not they doubted, they've ever doubted God's existence. So, and then other, uh, the doubting itself I wasn't too concerned about. I actually think it's a good thing that you doubt the existence of God because that makes your faith much more personal because you then examine the evidence for and against and it becomes your faith, your belief, as opposed to just believing it maybe because you were raised that way. So, but then it also talked about a reduction in the uh, some of the religious issues, like whether prayer is important part of their lives or not. And it, according to this author, he's saying that this is not specifically related to uh, a kind of a generational thing. It's not just because these this age group is less religious than older people. In a comparison of this age group versus the same age group of prior years, it's a significant drop. So that's kind of interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that. It's still said that roughly 80% of the people claim that they never doubted God's existence. And I find that a little bit, I don't know, hard to believe, actually. Uh, people are going to claim that they never doubted God's existence? Seems strange. I think you might have a more healthy faith if you did doubt and looked at the evidence. Maybe a lot of those people didn't doubt because they never thought about it. <laughs> well, it could be, too. <laughs> Absolutely, that could be. Not important. <laughs> yeah, for a lot of people, I think... Uh, maybe it's not important, and you know that's not a good thing. That's how good things uh, get lost, fall apart, because people don't realize that they are good things. So that's part of the purpose of this show is to talk about the importance of the Christian value system to our society and to families and to individuals so they can know that uh, these things really do matter and what you think, what you believe actually makes a difference in your life. I came across an interesting word recently. The word is apatheism, which means people that don't care whether God exists or not. <laughs> oh, there you go. Apatheist? Yes. So, and it said that an that's, atheist, e that's an even apatheist. worse. That's even worse than an atheist because at least an atheist is somewhat uh, involved in the subject, but an apatheist doesn't care one way or the other. <laughs> right, right. And there are probably a lot of people would fit into that category. There are very many people today who do. <laughs> well, one of the reasons, one of the ways you can start caring about things is by knowing that they're true. I mean, you know, if you think you can't know something is true, that can be one reason why you don't care about it. I mean, sure. think about it. You know, uh, let's say is there life on Alpha Centauri? Well, if you can't find out, uh, assuming that there's some kind of planet orbiting Alpha Centauri, but if you can't find that out, you're probably not going to care too much about it. On the other hand, if you have the ability to send a probe there and could look, or even if someone had actually sent a probe and had evidence one way or the other, you'd probably be a lot more interested in the answer to the question. That's true. Well, that's also part of the purpose of the show is to show you the evidence, and there was some exciting news published in an article in the Biblical Archaeology Review, the July 2012 issue. This was published by Herschel Shanks, 
written by Herschel Shanks, who was an archaeologist who was involved in the discovery of the James Ossuary. So I hope people have been paying attention to this. It's been in the news for the past couple of years because the ossuary of the brother of Jesus was believed to have been discovered and it was released to the public. And then the Israeli Antiquity Society made, I, I believe that's the right group. I guess I um, should have underlined that in this article to make sure I don't want to accuse the wrong organization. But there was an antiquities association that sued the finder of this ossuary claiming that it was fraudulent, that it was a forgery. Hmm. Well, the court case has been settled. The judge found in favor of the defense that it was actually authentic. And so the archaeologist Herschel Shanks is just writing a review of what happened in the court case and showing that the evidence in fact, supports the genuineness of this ossuary. One of the things he said that there was apparently a an archaeological expert in what's called the patinas. So people might be aware that a, a patina is a very thin coating that gets on things that are ancient. So if things are hundreds of years old, they'll get this very thin layer that's laid down actually by bacteria and uh, also, there are chemicals, um, oxidative chemicals that are involved in it, but the, you get this layer. And this patina expert claimed that there was no patina there in the inside the inscriptions. And apparently, the defense attorney said, actually, there is. Would you like to examine the ossuary again? And the expert said, sure, he would. And guess what? He came back to the stand and said, Actually, there is a patina there, hmm. so it is hundreds of years old. Hmm. And then they had a witness that had claimed that he had seen the ossuary in a shop in Jerusalem, in an antiquity shop, and it didn't have the inscription, the uh, second part of the inscription that said the brother of Jesus. Well, he apparently said that he was just kidding. So it was a joke, and uh, people didn't appreciate his humor. <laughs> so the whole case fell apart, and it turns out that the evidence is, in fact, very strong that this is an actual ancient ossuary. It says, James, son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Now, in this article, they talk about an interesting thing, that they looked at, they had a statistician, a specialist, look at what would be the odds of uh, some person having this combination of three names. You have the name James, your father is Joseph, and your brother is Jesus. Because those were actually fairly common names in the first century. Right. And so it turned out the statistics are it's about a 32% chance that there was only one person with such a combination of names. And a smaller probability, or I guess it was 38%. Unfortunately, I didn't print out the last page of this, and that's where that information is. Well, if I memory will have to serve me that it was 38% for one, about 32% possibility that there was two, and then an 18% possibility that there would be three people with that combination of names. The interesting thing, though, is that one of the things we know about ossuaries is they typically would just put the person's name and maybe who their father was, but they never put additional information unless that person was famous. 
So by the name saying James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus, it means that that Jesus was a famous Jesus. Right. So uh, that then makes it indeed very likely that this is actually the ossuary of James, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, huh. the brother, the brother of Jesus. Right. So exciting archaeology proving the truthfulness of the New Testament. But you know, Kirk, that's not all the evidence for the New Testament, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking about the accuracy of the New Testament. Well, Josh, uh, well, Josh, Kirk, I was going to tell you about Josh. Josh McDowell estimates that there are over 25,000 archaeological finds that support the Bible. And he includes things like the existence of specific people. And he says that there's about 30 New Testament individuals that we know about from outside evidence, evidence outside the New Testament, either writings or inscriptions or uh, archaeology that talks about 30 different New Testament individuals and nearly 60 different Old Testament characters. So there's just an incredible amount of evidence that supports the accuracy of the New Testament and really shows us that we can put our trust in it. We can really recognize the authority of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And of course, last this week is... we talked about how the New Testament had been transmitted very faithfully, and the Old Testament transmitted very faithfully. So now we're addressing the issue of okay, we know that it was transmitted reliably down to us. So what we have is actually what they wrote. So the next question then is: Is that really the way things were? Is this is what they wrote? Does it match the reality of the situation at that time? Now. The Bible's a little different from other religious books. If you've read, say, the Bhagavad Gita or some of the other uh, sacred texts, you find that they are not, they don't have a lot of history in them. And, and some of the history that they do have uh, seems a little difficult to check up on. But unlike that, the Bible really is largely historical uh, in its genre. It's really mostly a, a, a history story. So that gives us a lot of useful information that we can compare to what we find out there when we go digging, when archaeologists start to examine things, uh, when they f we find writings about what things were like in the ancient world. And we really have, uh, you know, there's just not much dispute about the main historical narrative, you know, from really Genesis chapter 11 on. From the patriarchs on, there's really not much to disagree about. The, the whole uh, kind of uh, environment that the, the Bible talks about is very accurate to the way other historical documents talk about the way things were thousands of years ago. There's a quote from Jeffrey Scheller that says, the patriarch narratives fit comfortably in the historical context that modern archaeology has helped to reconstruct. And that context places the patriarchs precisely where they should be, rather than in the hands of a post-exilic writer. 
And he says that because the theory by some critics is that after the Israelites were captured by the Babylonians and were forced into exile, that the Israeli leaders decided they needed to somehow unify the Israelites, and so they wrote the Bible then, after the exile, and kind of gave this narrative to the people to kind of strengthen their national identity. So, so they're saying that they made up all this backstory of the Jewish people? Yeah, exactly right. Like if somebody came along today and said, oh, all this stuff about the Founding Fathers and the Declaration of Independence and all that, it's not really true. We just made that up to give us something to all rally around. Yeah, exactly. Maybe what you might say, and this might actually happen in future times, they might look back and they'll say, you know, the Civil War, look at how the United States was... Uh, really split apart there, and it was in danger of falling apart. So you know what they did? The American historians made up this story about the founding fathers <laughs> and about the American Revolution, and they made up all these stories about Ben Franklin. There never was any Ben Franklin or George Washington. All these people are fictitious. <laughs> but they were, they were combined into a story to give the American people a sense of national identity and pride <laughs> so that they could end the Civil War. And that's why we have all these stories about founding fathers. But there never was any such person as James Madison et al. That's exactly the kind of thing that the critics are saying about the Old Testament texts. Right. So one of the things they used to say, and I remember seeing this, you don't see it much anymore, but I remember seeing this uh, back when I was a young man in college. The critics used to say that there was virtually no writing at all until after the time of Moses. So they said basically Moses couldn't have written the books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, because people didn't know how to write then. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, well, that's really a silly argument. I mean, we know, in fact, that that now that that is not true. So this whole idea, there's this idea out there that the Old Testament was passed along in an oral tradition. So, and I remember on vacation one time meeting a, a Jewish man, and he was, we got into a discussion about the Bible, and he was saying that, well, you know, I don't know how you can trust it when for hundreds of years it was passed down orally. Well, that's where this, the, these critics are the ones who made up this idea about uh, an oral tradition. We now know that, of course, writing was very widespread during this time. Now, of course, probably not as high as today. Literacy wasn't all that high, but plenty of people were able to write uh, during this time. So the the age of the uh, patriarchs. In fact, Moses may have very well, as is represented in the Old Testament, have edited previous writings of the patriarchs. Uh, so he simply acted as editor rather than writing the the uh, first five books uh, uh, himself. Right, the stuff that he personally wasn't there to see. Right. And then another thing that the critics say about this idea developed about 150 years ago, they developed this theory about the Old Testament, about how it was written during the Babylonian exile, and uh, they called this theory J-E-D-P, and it stands for the different authors. They thought that they could recognize different editors 
or groups of editors who had manipulated the text and put in what they wanted. So it's been about 150 years, and I was just speaking to a young man. I used to go to the church I was at, uh, Chris Cook, who went to seminary, and he basically said that his professors taught him that uh, this theory is really passe now. So even amongst secular theologians and Bible historians that the JEDP theory is really passe. So that's good news. I hope that that's true. Now, he didn't go to a, a, a very secular seminary, went to a pretty, uh, pretty upright religious seminary. So I just hope that that's a reflection of the rest of the seminaries around the world, because really there isn't any historical or archaeological evidence to support that theory And if people are interested in it, we did do a previous podcast on it a couple years back. We went into a great deal of information into exactly what the JEDP theory is and how you can easily show it's wrong just by looking at the text. So one of the problems then is uh, with this idea that the, the critics saying that all of this came late is, you know, why did Israel wait so long to write their law codes, right? I mean, most of what the Pentateuch is about is about the law codes. Well, there were plenty of ancient law codes that predated that time period. So it seems odd that the Israelites would go for so long, even get captured by the Babylonians and not have their own law codes. So again, this just doesn't really make sense. And the time, the time frame for this theory that it was written after the uh, Babylonian exile is from years 630 to 450 BC. That's about the time frame that uh, the critics believe the Old Testament was written. So subsequent archaeological discoveries, though, have shown that the people of the patriarch, uh, patriarchal times really actually did keep extensive written records. You know, they wrote about business transactions, they, they wrote histories, they, had, they, they left behind uh, copies of communications, business dealings, all kinds of things. So we really do have a g- good idea of what things were like during the patriarch uh, times. There's a, you know, uh, you can think about the uh, Book of the Dead, right, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, or the Epic of Gilgamesh, from the Babylonians. And that shows that, uh, you know, the ancients really did preserve texts over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the Israelites wouldn't have any kind of writing until <clears throat> after the Babylonian period, that they, that they did everything by oral transmission, just uh, really uh, doesn't hold water. It just doesn't make much sense. We also know that there was this type of proto-Canaanite Hebrew language that was being written in Egypt as early as the 25th century BC. So there's a definite possible connection there from very early, and it makes a lot of sense that the Israelites really did know how to write, and there's just no reason why they couldn't have written things down or, you know, that Moses actually did edit earlier records you know, the way tradition tells us and the internal evidence in the Old Testament shows us that Moses acted as an editor rather than writing the things out uh, himself. And we also know now you know, we've got the oldest 
fragment of the Old Testament dates from the 7th century, and that is uh, a little silver scroll that has part of a priestly ble- uh, blessing in it, so a little like a little amulet. And that was uh, unrolled and shown to be a quotation uh, from the Old Testament. So that goes back to before this time period that the critics say the Old Testament was written. So we actually have something in writing from prior to that time. Hmm. One of the really strong evidences is the Amarna letters. And that shows that there was extensive literacy uh, in the Canaanite population. And this goes back to around the 14th century BC. So this would be a little after the time period when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt in the 15th century BC. So uh, that's one of the areas that we get information about what things were like in those days. We also have the uh, Ugarit tablets. Those show the development of an alphabet from glyphs and cuneiform. And it contained a lot of foreign texts from around the Near East prior to about 1200 B.C. Uh, one of those documents actually even u- uh, includes the use of the name Abraham. Hmm. So even though it might not have been referring to the actual Abraham that we know of, at least we know that that was a name that was in use uh, in ancient times. Right. So, really, the basic message is that archaeology does corroborate the Bible. And the more we dig up, the more it fits into the situation that uh, is described. Well, before we go any further, we just want to let people know that if you're, you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rasho Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking about the archaeological evidence that supports the Bible. So, Kirk, let's go over some of the different time periods described in the Bible, and we'll see how they match what we know archaeologically. So, if we look at the time before Abraham, what we see is that the Bible makes accurate cultural references, the language and the legal styles, including word usage and contracts, the way contracts were done, those kinds of things were only used during that time period and never repeated again. So it seems really odd that someone hundreds and even a thousand years later could make up those kinds of things or would even know about those kinds of small details. It's not like they had research libraries that they could go to, you know, in 500 B.C. to see what was going on in 1500 B.C. Sure. This kind, so, of, this kind of reminds me of uh, my wife just retired a year or two ago, but she was a fourth grade elementary teacher. And she used to have fun every once in a while, especially toward the end of her teaching career. Uh, she would pull out something like a 45 record and hold it up in front of her students and say, does anyone know what this is? And most of them had no concept of what it is. They would be like, oh, that's awful big for a CD. What is it? Right. (laughs) And she'd have to explain to them, you know, what a record was and how it worked and, you know, how we would uh, buy individual songs on this little thing back in the 50s and 60s. And I mean, that wasn't all that long ago. Yet these kids had no concept of what a record or a record player is. (laughs) 
Right, because things change and information is lost. Right. And there's really no good way for someone living in ancient times to look things up. So that would uh, be it just like, shows that the records actually did come from that time period. Yeah, that would be like one of these kids, you know, writing a, a an essay on the 1960s, and you know, he'd he'd be like, oh, you know, the this CD came out in 1962, <laughs> and it's like uh, we didn't have CDs back then, <laughs> right? But they don't yeah, know those that. Are anachronism. It's actually right. funny. I I remember reading some early stories of um, from. One of my kids was an early attempt at writing, and it was very anachronistic. You know, it just she just didn't realize how the time period that she was talking about, the kinds of things she was saying would happen, just didn't happen right. back then. Now, if so, if I if I remember this story correctly too, from when I went to school, which was a ways back, um, I I remember even being taught that I if I have this correct, I believe it's the play Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. That at one point in that play, one of the characters refers to the clock up on the wall. And I remember our teacher pointing out what an anachronism that was. That, that oh. Shakespeare didn't realize when he wrote this, you know, this story is about the ancient Roman Empire. He, he must have just forgotten that at that time they didn't have clocks back then. Oh, right. But That's it's right. there in the play, you know, that the character says you looked up at the clock on the wall and it was, you know, like two o'clock or whatever. And it's, it's just a fun little anachronism that got stuck in there. Right, that's right. Uh, yeah, that reminds me of the uh, anachronisms that are in the Quran. Um, like uh, it mentions that Pharaoh talks about uh, crucifying Moses. Well, <laughs> guess what? There wasn't any crucifixion back then. The Romans so that invented, invented crucifying for many centuries to come. Right, but that's well, kind of uh, interesting that the Bible doesn't have those kind of anachronisms. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So, in fact, if you look at the time period of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, you find also, again, very accurate cultural references. Uh, for instance, Joseph is mentioned by name in non-biblical texts. So, and as far as we can tell, this is referring to the actual Joseph who became ruler of Egypt. So, historical mentions of Joseph, uh, for instance, the Information that slaves from Canaan served on private Egyptian estates. Okay, that's something that we know archaeologically, and that's a background story uh, from that time period. Um, there actually was a royal prison under a keeper, and, and this was something very uncommon in the ancient world. So there was one in Egypt, but it's not something that someone from other areas like Canaan and then certainly hundreds of years later, would have even thought was possible. Uh, we know archaeologically that 20 shekels was the correct price for a male slave of that time, as mentioned in the Bible. Hmm. We know all about the wheat production. We know about the granaries and the state control of property that all match the story of Joseph and how Egypt began a massive wheat production program and wound up buying all the property from all the landowners so that all of the state power, which had been divided up by wealthy landowners, all became centralized to the pharaoh. And the pharaoh then owned all the property in Egypt and uh, became a central 
authority. And we know all about that from extra-biblical information, and mm. yet it exactly matches what the Old Testament says. Hmm. Okay, let's look at the Exodus time period and the conquest. Does that match what we know historically? Well, we know about the Exodus plagues. There are references to the uh, plagues of Exodus. Um, we know about the fall of Jericho's walls. That matches the story from the Old Testament, including the uh, exact time that it occurred. Uh, there was, there's an accurate use of the term pharaoh in this time period in the Exodus story. It talks about pharaoh without a proper name. Now, this was common before the 10th century, but after the 10th century, it wasn't common. So, how did the supposed later authors know that? Hmm. They wouldn't have known that. It must have been written during that time period. Right. We know that there was uh, the presence of Asiatic slaves that were called Habiru. Um, so, and some of those had biblical names. So, it was very likely that this became where the derivation of the word Hebrew. Wow. Um, and, and these slaves lived in homes that had an architectural layout that matches the Israelite layout. So, these slaves had Israelite architectural homes that later appear in Israel. Uh, they had the names. They were called Habiru. So, all of this is very strong archaeological support for the evidence. We even... And I have to do more research. It'd really be good. We can do uh, part of the show on this in the future. There's a tomb that is possibly that of Joseph's. That would be interesting to know more about that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We also even have two references to Yahweh in Egypt that occur around circa 1400 and 1300 uh, BC. So, again, specific wow. names mentioned plus all of the circumstances surrounding the stories, as well as very specific details of the stories, all match the archaeological uh, discoveries. Hmm. Let's look at the time of Judges, all right? There was a time, the book of Judges talks about the Hittites, okay? Well, there was right. a time when Hittites, archaeologists didn't believe the Hittites existed. Now we know they did, Um there's a description of the Mitanni people that were destroyed by the Hittites. And we now know this happened in 1340 B.C., the exact time of the Judges, the hmm. Book of Judges. So, yep. just an incredible amount of evidence. The history of Israel as a nation before the exile has also been corroborated by archaeological finds such as, we'll just list a few of them, you can look them up on the internet, the Taylor prism, the Moabite stone, the Tel Dan steel, there's the Merneptha stella, which specifically mentions Israel, and this is from circa 1215 BC. Wow. So there's really just no basis whatsoever for any kind of a wholesale skepticism of the Bible's historical claims, because it it just shows there's excellent manuscript evidence and historical and archaeological accuracy there. You really don't have any doubt. So there's no evidence whatsoever that there was any substantial period of oral tradition. Um, it really just looks like 
uh, everything is as the Bible describes it. Hmm. So, Kirk, I thought the next thing we'd do is take a look at a specific story in the Bible and see how well that is supported by archaeology. Let's look at the Battle of Jericho. So, this is, you know, a contentious issue. Did the Israelites really come out of Egypt? Did they really cross across the Red Sea, through the Red Sea? So, these things are really in question today. Lots of secular and skeptical uh, academics want to question this. Well, I don't want to get ahead of you here, but didn't they discover the city of Jericho just within the past few years, the archaeological remains of it and the walls that were crumbled? Well, no, they've known about Jericho for quite some time. They've done different, there have been different archaeological digs at different times. Um, I'm not sure of the dating. I believe maybe one of the first ones was in the 1930s, and then there was uh, later work done uh, around the uh, the year 2000. So uh, lots of encouraging work that was done really shows that uh, the walls did fall down at the exact same time of year, at the right time, and exactly correlates with the story that we have uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the Old Testament. Here's a quote from Time Magazine from 1995. It says, The walls of this Canaanite city did come tumbling down, say some historians, but centuries before Moses' protege could have arrived. Now, this is one of the things that the critics say, because there's a problem with Egyptian chronology that's resulted in this apparent uh, misfit, where exactly what happened seems to have happened, but some critics say that it didn't happen at the right time. So you'll sometimes hear about that. So then the same would be true for other miraculous events, And I mentioned about the quote from the Egyptian writer that has, uh, uh, tells about the plagues. So, and that fits almost line for line, the plagues discussed in the, in the book of Exodus. So, so what's this issue? How is it that, you know, there's this problem? And I don't know if we want to get into it, but the accounts of the Exodus and the the conquest can be uh, realigned if we take into consideration a few changes. And what that would mean is that the Exodus actually occurred in the year 1446 B.C. And that uh, then fits all the uh, archaeological information that we have. You know, there's this problem of if you don't have the times worked out right, then you've got this problem of uh, no mention of Israelites in Egypt, um, no mention of Exodus in the Egyptian records. Of course, one of the main solutions to that is that why would the Egyptian government write bad things about itself? Right. Right? I mean, uh, they were the ones in control of what got written down on a, a monument, right, the, or on a, in, on a tomb, right? Those inscriptions were really um, just state propaganda, you know, and they usually extolled the accomplishments of the pharaohs. Sure. I mean, why would so you some, put up a monument uh, to one of your to a battle that you lost or a failure? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this issue is that to the Egyptians, writing was something sacred. So if you wrote something down, in a sense, you would give reality to it by recording it. Hmm. So 
if you didn't record an event that actually happened, it would be as if it never really happened. And if you did write something down, you would write it down all flowery and all with all uh, positive and you know propagandistic style, because then that in a sense made it magically true. So, well, that's kind of what uh, a lot of journalists do today. They call it revising history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> If they don't like history the way it reads, then they just change it a little bit so that it fits what they want to say. Right, right. So um, I mentioned, you know, that Moses used the term Pharaoh, but he didn't use the name. Right. right. And uh, Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen said that the biblical and Egyptian uses of Pharaoh correspond closely. Thus, in the Pentateuch, Pharaoh is used without a proper name, precisely as in Egypt. From the 10th century BC onward, Pharaoh plus a proper name became common usage. So, and you can take a look at this um, in different sections of the Bible Jeremiah 44 30, uh, 2 Kings 23 29, or 2 Chronicles 35 20, if you want to look it up. So again, the Old Testament is written in exactly the same style as the time that it describes. Right. That's right. We also have uh, evidence of Israel being in Egypt. We've got the evidence of the Asiatic slaves in Egypt that we talked about, and that matches the time of the sojourn that's talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, some of those people had biblical names, like we said. The, they were called the Habiru, which means stateless. So that might be where the term Hebrew comes from. Hmm. The uh, slave settlements that were at Tel El Daba appear to be Israeli in architecture. Uh, they had four rooms, four-roomed houses that were identical to the Israeli houses that were built during the period of the judges. Hmm. So, and then there's even this tomb at the slave site, which could possibly be that of Joseph. Wow. Well, Kirk, let's uh, wrap things up, I think, for today. We'll continue a little bit further with some of this. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And you have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!